Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview an educator, mentor, composer, and Grammy Award-winning drummer, Ulysses Owens Jr. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have one of my favorite drummers in the whole scene, USC's Owens Jr. Sir, thank you for joining us. What's up, man? Good to see you and uh, happy to be here. Well, can you just give people a short rundown about yourself and then we get right into it? Sure, man. Uh, so I'm Ulysses Owens Jr. I'm a jazz drummer, educator, um, author, and creative entrepreneur and uh, from Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, lived in New York for almost 20 years and counting. I also have residents in Jacksonville, Florida, because I have a nonprofit organization with my family. So, uh, yeah, I love jazz music. Been uh, playing jazz since I was about 16 years old. So been playing drums since I was two. So it's a little bit of a little bit of my backstory. So you technically started before me. Okay. Yes, he's older <laughs> than me, guys. And I also want to say the first time I heard of you was that brilliant trio album with both the Christians and yourself. Yeah. Christian Sands and Christian McBride. So just before, I'm just curious, how did you even get involved in that project? Two Geminis and a Sagittarius. Um, <laughs> man, you know, I, I think that I was telling my students yesterday, I also teach at Juilliard, and I was telling my students that a lot of life and a lot of career opportunities are are fate, but it's also, you know, what do they, they say? Success is when opportunity meets preparation. Um, and so I would say with McBride, it was a, a couple of different events happened. So I first knew who McBride was when I was 16 years old. I'd gone to Borders Bookstore and I purchased his Family Affair album. And that album was produced by George Duke. And uh, so it was kind of funny that I was sort of meeting his sound in the middle of his uh, sort of career. I would got into all the other stuff, Number Two Express, getting to it all that later. So that was kind of when he was on my radar. And then all the drummers that I was starting to check out between 16 and 18, like Roy Haynes and Dave Walker and just all these drummers, he was always playing with them. So he was already somebody in my mind that I was like, oh my God, I want, I want to meet this guy one day. He's, you know, nobody plays the bass like Christian McBride. Then I go to Juilliard, fast forward my freshman year, and every week we'd have jazz improv. And instead of having a teacher, they would bring in a guest artist. And so one particular week, Christian McBride comes in and I, I always make him laugh. Uh, he had an orange sweater on and, uh, and he just filled up the room. And again, you know, it was great. Uh, shortly thereafter, he formed a camp uh, with Jazz Aspen Snowmass. And it was a jazz camp for college students. I got accepted to that camp. And man, it's crazy. And I want to look back at who were my camp mates. Keon Harrell, uh, Tim Green. <laughs> um, it was like all these other killing cats, you know, because it was a blend of like the Lonious Monk Institute and just random college students that would apply. So that was when I got a chance to kind of have more one-on-one attention with McBride. Fast forward, um, I had played in the camp a few times. And so I was invited after I graduated college to come back uh, as like an alumnus. And I came back with Sharnae Wade. She had a quartet featuring Oscar Perez and Matthew Rubicki and myself. So I was like, you know what, it'd be great to go back with Sharnae and, and hang with McBride and, and get to see him. Long story short, he says that was when he sort of saw me in a new light. He says, man, you could always play, but it's something about when you came there with Charnay, I really heard something different. Fast forward, uh, 
I think maybe months later, he had formed Inside Straight. He sort of left the Christian McBride band and a lot of the fusion stuff he was doing, and he was sort of coming back to Straight Ahead. Carl Allen was the band, uh, the drummer. Well, Carl Allen had also simultaneously taken over the Juilliard Jazz Program, so he couldn't make a lot of recording dates and, and tour dates. So McBride called me. He said, hey, man, I got his manager called. said, hey, man, I got like two gigs uh, on the West Coast. McBride thought you played your butt off in Aspen, and he wants to give you a chance to play with them. After that that uh, week with him, he was like, man, you really got some stuff together. He said, uh, do you play big band? And I said, well, actually, I do. I said, um, Count Basie Orchestra, when Butch Miles left, they asked me to join a band. But I literally, in one week, got the call from Count Basie and Kurt Elling. And I chose her, Kurt Elling because Kurt had more work. <laughs> Count Basie this had, guy like, had coming out of college. You know, I know. <laughs> so Kurt, you know, Kurt had like two years worth of work. Count Basie had six gigs. So um, long story short, He's like, man, so you man, you play with the Basie band? So we talked about that. He said, man, I'm starting up this new big band. So would you be willing to play? So I started playing with the big band. Then I was subbing gigs for Carl. Then uh, a couple gigs came through for Inside Straight that didn't pay as well as, I guess, his normal leader fee. But he still wanted to do the gigs because that's how McBride is. Like, he's the kind of cat that he wants to get the music to people. So he was like, uh, hey, I'm going to do these gigs, but I'm, I'm just going to put together a trio. So the gig was one, the first trio was actually Gerald Clayton on piano and myself and McBride. We did a gig at Symphony Space in New York City. And McBride was like, man, this kind of has a vibe. But of course, at that time, Gerald Clayton was incredibly busy doing his own thing. So then um, we got these two gigs in Slovakia. uh, And it was Peter Martin on piano and myself and McBride. So this is kind of when everything changed. So mind you, I'm still the sub for Inside Straight. I've only done like a couple big band gigs with McBride and I've done a couple like tours with uh, Inside Straight. So we, we don't have anything really substantial. Long story short, we do these gigs in Slovakia and that's when we did, we created the arrangement of Cherokee that everybody has now known. So we were literally on stage in Slovakia the first night of the tour. We were in this big gymnasium and McBride was like, you know, we need to, we need to come up with something kind of cool. So we started playing really, really fast. He was like, you know what, let's play Cherokee. And he said, no, nah, but let's change the bridge. Kind of, you know, like Ahmed Jamal. Like, cool. So we started playing it. I think we had three gigs. The first night, people went crazy. The second night, uh, we started filming, like, with a little flip video camera. And this is, like, the early, early stages of, like, people putting stuff up on YouTube, like, live gigs. So we finished the tour. People go crazy. Uh, we have a good time. Andre, Christian's manager, uploads the video to YouTube. McBride says, today, that is the video that had the most views. <laughs> he was like, man, I've been doing all this other leader work. He was like, maybe something something is behind me doing this trio. So again, fast forward. He says, man, we need to start doing some trio dates. A few months later, I go back to Jazz Aspen. Now I've been invited back to be a teacher and basically work with McBride and work with, you know, all the different cats. And Christian Sands is a camper. So I never forget, Christian Sands gets on stage. He was there actually with another group of, of, of students. And me and McBride are sitting next to each other, just talking stuff. Sands gets up and plays. And I was like, whoa. And McBride was like, yeah. Next thing I know, McBride set up some gigs and Christian Sands was on the gig. <laughs> and then the rest is history. <laughs> so, I mean, first of all, that's one thing I give Christian. That's something I give yourself. That you always help in the younger people. You, mm-hmm. One of those, uh, what's the word I would say? I don't want to say uh, mentor or anything, but you actually do help them. You lead them a lot. You give them recording gigs and all that stuff. Something I love to say about this album. 
I think four or five of them came on my podcast already. Uh, Gifton came on, oh, Benny wow. came on, Alexis came on, Yasushi came on. Uh, if anyone else came on, I'm sorry you're not coming off the top of my head, but dude. Wow, you got all the goods. No, you got all the goods. That's the beautiful thing about your <laughs> album. <laughs> so Thank you, man. It comes out on the 7th of May, right? Yes. Okay. With outside in music, yeah. It's, uh, it's so funny, man. This is probably the first album that I have promoted this much. Um, one, I'm just so, I'm so excited about it and it's been a long time coming and the folks at outside in have been so incredible as well as Lydia Liebman. And I think it's also the time we're living in and, and the youthful energy in the band. So yeah, man, I'm so excited. I've been talking about this album more than I've talked about any project that I think I've ever had. But why did you release it now? I wish you released it during Corona era, unfortunately. Well, well, you know, it's interesting, man. Like, so this album has been in the makeup for three years. Uh, I, I first started my big band about four years ago uh, due to Mike D's. He and I had a bunch of talks. And so Jazz Lincoln Center, I felt like they gave me an opportunity in 2017 to, uh, they always give me a week every year. And so they gave me a week and I was like, man, I want to, you know, I want to try this big band idea out. So in 2017, that was the first time I premiered it. Uh, Winton was also across the hall with this big band and people were like, man, like y'all sound killing. Like, and you figured out a way to like put some unique voices and, create a lot of equity and diversity and inclusion in the band. So, um, and then I was also forming a relationship with my manager, Miles Weinstein. So, so anyway, 2017, it happens. Then 2018, Miles comes to hear the big band. And I think at that time we did like two nights and Miles was like, Ulysses, I love everything else you're doing. He actually signed me because of the project songs of freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I love songs of freedom. You know, we got a bunch of stuff happening. He's like, but man, this big band is really, special. He was like, it really not only showcases you, but it's like you being this larger figure and really helping these, these other young musicians. So I was like, all right. So he's like, I really think you should record this album. So we actually recorded 2018, but it wasn't really good because we hadn't really fine tuned the band. We hadn't really fine tuned the arrangements. So I'll say we documented. So I, I talked to all my guys and, and the ladies in the band, I was like, listen, y'all, thank you so much for recording, but we're not where we need to be. Next year, we're going to record. I'm doing a week for my birthday. Every night is going to be big band and we're going to take the last two nights and we're going to record. Everybody's like, oh my God, we're excited. So literally we built up to that, that week, man. I mean, we sold out every set, every night. Um, the energy was right. And so anyway, I have this record in the can and in my mind, I was going to release it. I want to say like maybe last year. But I was like, man, it's Corona. Like, you know, and we were like deep in the middle of like the stay at home thing. So I'm like, you know, I don't want to be that guy. Like everybody's at home and like, you know, asking them to also like, you know, take care of somebody who's sick and listen to my album. I thought that was a little bit selfish to me. Understood. Um, you know, so for me, what I decided to do was I was like, you know, I feel like in May and I talked to Nick Finzer and the crew outside in. I was like, I feel like in May we'll, we'll be in it a little bit, but I feel that the world will be opening up. And sure enough, the world is kind of opening up. Yeah, we're not out of the clouds, but I do feel that people are creating and they're open to creating. People are traveling again. We're getting vaccinated. So I, I kind of felt like it was like, you know, I could sort of come out of the storm as the storm was ending um, with this album. And uh, yeah, so I've never released an album in the pandemic, but I feel like uh, it resonates with a lot of people. And that was the one thing that I love about this record is this music has been tested and tried. Like I played it night after night, you know, everybody loves this music. So it was the first time I was releasing something that I knew the audience was wanting because every time I played, they're like, where's the record? Where's the record? 
So it was the first record that people were asking me for, as opposed to all the other ones. Um, maybe with the exception of Songs of Freedom, but all the other ones were just things I was putting out into the world. Now, do you think that's more because of a lack of big bands right now, or do you think it's because you were killing it? Well, I, you know, I will never say I was killing it. I mean, what what okay, I will say Mr. is Modest I think too. that what, okay. No, I mean, you know, I mean, I got to be, you know, man, I grew up in church, man. You know, they say humble yourself. Um, <laughs> but what I will say is. I think what we are saying and are doing is incredibly authentic. It's incredibly rich. And I think it is something that people resonate with. Um, and, and so to that point, it is a powerful product. Um, and I think that's why people are digging on it. And I have faith in the product because again, we were, you know, uh, a big band playing music at Dizzy's club every night and selling out. So that for me was like, they had a bunch of other clubs that people could go to, but they kept fighting to get into our club. So that that spoke to me to the spirit of, of our collective energy. Um, yeah, I mean, I also never thought I'd put out a big band album, but here we are. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> because, I, I mean, one, is too expensive. I mean, you know, the cost, what it takes to put out a big band album is incredibly expensive. Also, the care. And, uh, you know, when you put out a regular album, you can take a couple days and mix Master and you done, especially a jazz record. That's not like, you know, I'm not talking about like a Robert Glass for like fully produced. I mean, like if you just tracking four or five cats, quintet, you know, it's pretty easy. When you start dealing with big band, before you even get into mixing and mastering, you have to have an editing session where you're literally going through because even though the band is rehearsed, you got to go through each part and you know, cook this note, you know, tune this one, you know, you know, hook up this trombone solely, hook up that sax. I mean. My editing session was three days long before we even got to the mixing room. So I think when you start talking about big band, it's just a lot more effort because now you've got, you know, 19 pieces uh, to think about and figure out how to first make sure they individually sound good. And then they are really good collectively as a unit. Okay. Uh, also on that, I'm just curious, how did you decide your rhythm section? Well, that was easy. So, so it's important to know that this big band was born out of a quintet that was started uh, probably eight, nine years ago that no longer exists, but it was called the New Century Jazz Quintet. It was a band that was primarily focused in Japan. I formed a band with Takeshi Obayashi, who's the pianist. He and I were starting to do a lot of stuff in Japan because he's obviously Japanese. And I remember being in Japan and we were we saw this absence of jazz, uh, uh, jazz bands in Japan and our age range were not swinging. Everything was was either like sort of pop, or sort of like R&B, but it was nobody really like dealing with the tradition. So Takeshi and I were like, why don't we put together a band that sort of meets that gap? It's basically like an updated Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. So Takeshi had all the tour, you know, like touring and venue contacts. I had a lot of the reputation of, of being an American young jazz musician that was, you know, being supported and all that. So we were like, all right, cool, let's come together. So we did that. We built the band around then 19-year-old Benny Benek, uh, Tim Green, Yasushi Nakamura, and uh, it was this hybrid of we were in tribute to Art Blakey, but also Terrence and Donald Harrison, Mulgrew Miller, Roy Hargrove. And we made four really, really good records. I'm very proud of those records under the Spice of Life uh, record label. So we toured Japan for about four years. You know, we played Tokyo Jazz Festival. I mean, we would go on three week tours on our own. We would hop in a van. I mean, that was the first time I saw jazz truly ignite an audience like old school. You know, we, we, we built something special. But then it got to a point where we were really hot in Japan, but nowhere else. We couldn't really get any traction in America or anything like that, even though it was a great product. 
So the first thing to answer your question, when I, I thought about New Century, the first big band was actually Ulysses Owens Jr. and the, and the New Century big band which this idea that this new century is going to present this new talent. Um, so the rhythm section was Yasushi, myself, and Takeshi. As the new century brand started to kind of transition, I said, you know what, that that's over. I'm just going to now make it the Ulysses Owens Jr. Band. And, you know, now we have what we have. But I still love playing with Yasushi and, and uh, Takeshi. I mean, being able to play with people like McBride, Ruben Rogers, Ben Williams, all these great bass players, I'm really spoiled. And I'm also very particular about what I like. And Yasushi, to me, is one of the greatest bassists of our generation. And Takeshi is a real unsung hero, in my opinion. He's got all that Mulgrew Miller, Kenny Barron. You know, he's got the classical chops. And then he just knows how to play really well with drummers. A lot of drummers hire him because he understands rhythm. So that's why I picked my rhythm section. Okay. Uh, another thing that you just mentioned. Benny, outstanding trumpet yeah. player. And when he came that's on, oh, he gave a huge respect shout out to you. Like when that he released his God. album, you came over here for a day from Europe, <laughs> to go to the release party, listen yeah. to it, and then you flew back. Yeah, I, I love Benny, man. You know, Benny is one of those bright lights that I met when he was, uh, first of all, it was a Jet Magazine review where Winton actually, uh, I think he called it like the next generation of jazz greats or something like that. And I was fortunate to be part of it and Sullivan, a bunch of other great musicians. And Benny was in there. And uh, I was like, wow, so that's the first time I heard him. But I was like, who's this guy? He's in this article, but I've not seen like anything on him or I haven't seen him in the city. Uh, all of a sudden after that, I started seeing his name everywhere. And when I heard him, I was like, man, this cat can play. You know, he wasn't singing that much then. So he could really play. So when we were putting together New Century, I wanted somebody young. I wanted someone that was fresh that nobody really knew that we kind of could introduce to the world. And that became Benny. Then all of a sudden he started singing. And then that's when I pulled his coattail and I was like, Benny, you know, you got this sort of like shtick of being, you know, nice cat and kind of a jokester. I was like, but you're a really serious musician. And if you really want to make an impact on the scene, let's be serious about it. So he made his first record. He asked me to play on half of it. First record did well. But I, again, I went back to him. I said, Benny, now you've been on the road. McBride had been calling him. I mean, he was starting to make some, some moves. I said, man, you're serious about a record. Like, let's make a real record. Like, not not just you having all your homies in the, in the studio and, um, you know, but let's get a true cast of people to support you. So he's like, well, I'm down. Will you produce it? All right, cool. And that's when we made a lot of living to do. So I, I think Benny in another few years, man, he's good. I think he could very easily be the next, you know, Buble or Harry Connick. You know, he's got that kind of rise, you know, and he's an incredible musician, great pianist, can write. He's also, a, he's an English major or something like that as well. I mean, he's a brilliant kid, you know. Mm -hmm. You wrote my favorite track on the album. That's what also caught my eye. London Town. It was my favorite track too, man. <laughs> so, shout out to Benny. Uh, keep doing your Benny thing, man. Back. Yeah, Benny's 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 a bad cat. And and I, I since we're talking about London Town, we got to give a shout out to Stephen Feifke, who also has a, a new big band project coming out. But Stephen Feifke actually arranged that track. Oh, so uh, yeah, shout out to him. Well, another thing on that. So you're doing your big band thing. You're saying there's not that many youth doing it. What is your opinion on the eighth bit big band? The what? Eat bit, big band. You heard of them? I, you know, I, I can't. I know that I've seen the name, but I can't say that I've heard of them. So I won't speak about them because I don't, I don't know much about them. Okay, that's completely fair. Yeah. So, where has been your favorite place to perform in general? Oh man, I mean, it's, it's I'm torn. Like I love. Uh, so since the pandemic, I, I spent a lot of time in Florida, um, and and 
you know, obviously gigs dried up. So I started a jam session uh, in Jacksonville. So that's been going on every Sunday since October. And I, I play with a lot of different musicians as two different sets of bands. One is a Jacksonville jazz legend, Barry Green and uh, Scott Giddens. The other is these young cats. It's almost like I'm reinventing the trio experience. Uh, it's Cat Liston Gregory III on the piano and Jose Villapando on bass. I have so much fun playing with these young cats. Liston is 25, Jose is 24. And uh, I have so much fun playing with them because they, they're straight ahead, but they also like, you know, they're gospel cats. Because in Florida, everybody has to be really versatile. So it's been great, like, getting back to, like, my groove playing and, like, really opening up with them. So that's probably my favorite place to play right now. I also love Japan, and I love playing in New York City. So those are those are uh, three places I really, really enjoy to play, uh, enjoy playing. All right. Well, a few more questions about just the experience. <laughs> please, please. Okay, man. Okay. I, and, and, that's, and you can add, I love, I, I wish I would have known who the 8 Big Big Band was, but I, I'm happy to talk about any other bands or any other people you want opinions about. I'll just say this, man. You know what I want to see perform? I would love to see Christian McBride, Christian Sands, yourself, Warren Wolf, and you throw in one other lead player. I think I would be there every night just hearing you guys jam. Well, that happened. That happened. So um, that happened? Yeah, that happened a lot, um, actually. So when Christian had Inside Straight, um, as I said, and Inside Straight originally was Carl Allen, uh, McBride, Warren Wolf, uh, Steve Wilson. That was that band. Well, there were many times where a lot of the, you know, Peter, and then Peter Martin was on piano. Uh, originally in that band, it was Eric Reed. Um, <laughs> Eric Reed also? Yeah, I think Eric did. I you got me, Eric did you got me even more yeah. interested in this now. <laughs> yes, I feel, like Eric did, I feel like Eric did the first record, actually, kind of, uh, kind of brown. And then Peter started doing the record dates, but, or the tour dates. But anyway, um, there were times where cats couldn't make the tours. So there there are tours where it was literally Warren Sands on piano, because uh, we had the trio at that time, and Steve Wilson. We've done gigs like that um, with, with that band. Um, and they were a lot of fun, man. You know, a lot of fun. And then I played um, I played quite a bit with Warren Wolf, because I, I mean, I did a pile of those inside straight gigs, and then also with Peter Martin, as well, so uh, and then you know, yeah, Sands and, and McBride, those are those are my boys, man. I, I love playing with them. I miss I miss playing with them, you know. But I think that um, and McBride and I talked about this, you know, right when I was departing from the band with his blessing, um, was he said, you know, as much as I love us playing together, he said, in the tradition of the music, you all have to grow and you all have to go. Just like you know, Miles had that great band, and then you know, Herbie, Ron, Tony, all of them left and did their thing. Blakey had a great band. You know, so I think the evolution of the music is that you don't stay in those bands forever, but from that experience, you branch out and you create your own project. And so Sands, I mean, he was just up for a Grammy this year mm-hmm. uh, for his project, which I'm so incredibly proud of him. I love all, I, I'm, I'm like his biggest fan. Every time a record comes out, I like, I'm texting them and messing with him and telling them how proud I am of him because I remember being in the trio and being on the road and him writing and being like, man, I got this stuff I want to say. You know, I love the trio, but I also want to do this. And he had different musicians he wanted to work with. And now he's finally kind of starting to get his sound and the things that he wants to say. So, yeah, I would love, you know, it'd be great to play with that band again. But I'm happy to see what everybody has grown and, and accomplished. Okay. Well, you being a Juilliard professor, and I have a love-hate relationship with Juilliard. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's oh, about come, hate. Do you really want me to go there, man? You're going to trigger me. <laughs> Academia world. Okay. Give me, give me one. Give me one. Okay. What, what's, what's something you don't like about it? 
the whole famous rumor, I don't know if this is 100% true, okay. that bass players weren't allowed to use amps. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I'll say, though. Here's what I will say. What I will say is um, I think that philosophy has less to do with the school and more to do with the perspective of uh, personalities within this music that believe in the tradition. And here's what I will say. I, I know for every instrument, I won't even talk about bass. Mm-hmm. For every instrument, you need to learn how to play that instrument and get a good, beautiful, natural sound out of the instrument. That's, that's if we're playing acoustic, acoustic music, we got to learn that. Um, I think when you get into the thing of, well, you, you should never use an amp or you should never use whatever. I mean, everybody has preferences, but I think where the spirit of it comes from is, you know, this music was built around musicians who played that instrument and got signed out of the instrument. Um, and so again, when you start talking about conservatory, what is a conservatory, right? A conservatory is a place that upholds traditional practices, uh, in teaching so that people can start from a foundation. So, Hey man, it is what it is. But I don't, I don't think that's so much a school than it is the perspective of who may be running the program or maybe particular staff members that are teaching the students. Well, at least you're on the road still and everything, but <laughs> a lot of these professors are more than happy with their paycheck and their salary and they stay there. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, well, here's, yeah, sorry. Go no, 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 go. you go. I was, I was just going to say this. I think some of it, so like I'll mention one person, right? I, I know that, for instance, Winter Marsalis is a very like like so. Winton is our artistic director and incredible. I mean, I, when he he could talk about M and M's, and I'm like, you know, journaling because the cat just he's just brilliant, right? I know that one of you know as as his as as an employee and you know under his artistic directorship and also Dr. Aaron Flagg, the chair, the big part of their philosophy and pedagogy is they want to retain the tradition of jazz music and swing. And so in the teaching of that, they're very big on our students learning. Here is the template based on our, you know, the masters of this art form. Now, I remember a few years ago, before I think Winton came back as artistic director, we had Ron Carter teaching there. Right. So it was funny because, you know, you had one, you know, philosophy where it's like gut strings, no amps. Then all of a sudden when Ron was there, there was a GK amp in every room, (laughs) you know, because Ron has a completely different philosophy, right? So I actually loved it because I think that jazz and just like all the things in life should be embraced from multiple perspectives. It shouldn't just be one, like this is the way to do it. But what I love about what Winton and them are doing, and I do respect Leander, is I do think if we don't teach people what the tradition is, even if they choose to do something else, we're not giving them the truth. And for that, Leander, I think we, you know, it's like, for instance, if you're a podcaster, and you never listen, and you never listen to the great radio announcers from you know old who established this art form before it became podcasting. Then are you really doing your due diligence? So I think for me, what I agree about it is there's a history to this music, and what's also happening in jazz. And I don't want to go off on a tangent, but what is also happening in jazz is that we are we have departed so far from the source, and that we're calling jazz a lot of stuff that I don't know that is jazz, and so. I think that staunch sort of conservative viewpoint is is in is is trying to protect the tradition. I agree with that. You need to protect it. You need to teach it. But then you're going to have people like Robert not being considered jazz. Okay. 
Well, yeah, I mean, he is a bad thing, player. I love his album. Well, well, well. So, so let's so let's let's debate something really quickly. Go, Robert, and mind you, I know I know Robert because I remember growing up in New York when I got to Juilliard when Robert was doing jazz jam sessions at the Up Over Jazz Cafe in Brooklyn mm. on Grand Army Plaza, where you go get some chicken wings and go upstairs, and all the cats with Laurent, basically D'Angelo's band formed there. Mm. Laurent Thomas. Um, but Bilal was there every, I think it was every Thursday night. Uh, Keon Harrell, Kareem Riggins, Derek Ha. I mean, all these, most of these cats that you see, Ray Angry, like all these guys that you see now fully in the pop world, this was the place where all of that was sort of happening. Glasper, I remember when I got in Russell Malone's band, Robert Glasper had just left that band. Robert played with Branford. Robert played with, I mean, he's bad. He's a great, great, great musician. However, his Black Radio Experiment album, that is not a jazz album. That is an unbelievable neo-soul album. Now his album Double Booked, his album, um, you know, the, the trio stuff, all that is, to me, jazz. But Black Radio, I mean, first of all, is one of my favorite. I mean, I think he changed the game uh, and, and, and is brilliant. But I don't think that is a jazz project. But Robert is, by definition, one of the greatest jazz pianists, I think, and our, th- that has ever walked the planet. And beyond that, he's a great producer and a great con- a great con- concept guy. But I think we get in I think we get in trouble when we say, okay, he's a jazz musician, so all of his albums are jazz. They're not all jazz, but he is a jazz musician that has an incredible discography and reputation and respect from the jazz community because of the level of virtuosity that he functions. But don't you? But believe, he also hung. Go ahead. Don't Sorry. you believe those type of albums is what brings in our audience? See, this is this is my so I'll wait. I'm gonna shift for a second. Go. Okay. I would talk about Italian food. I love food. I'm a foodie, right? Yeah. I am. I'm a foodie, uh, and as a result of my traveling, I, I you know some would consider me. My girlfriend considers me a food snob, and I'm a food snob because I've had an opportunity to travel the world and not only taste good food, but I've had a chance to taste it from chefs in authentic places. So I've been at Sakiji, which is in the middle of Tokyo, is a fish market where all of the sushi from the, all the sushi in the entire city comes from Sakiji. I don't care whether you're a Michelin star or you're a low star restaurant, everybody gets their fish from Sakiji. You know, I've been to Italy and Tuscany and I've had wine and I've had pasta from, you know, old grandmothers who are 80 years old, been making it for 50 years. What I'm saying is when you talk about something that is incredibly authentic, there is no compromise with what it is. And also we're not worried about the audience. The little old grandmother's not worried about a hundred people come into her restaurant. However, people know if you want the best pizza in the world, you probably need to go to that lady's house and they all find her, right? What my thing is about jazz is that we're starting to dilute the music because we're looking for a new audience. Newsflash, we have operated one to 2% of the consumer marketplace for at least three decades. Jazz has not been popular since the 60s, really the 50s. So this idea that a, that a Robert Glasper or a Jacob Collier or 8-Bit or whomever has the potential to bring a new audience. We are delusional. We've not had a new substantial audience in over, set, what, 70 years? <laughs> and we think one record, Black Radio, we think Jacob Collier, Collier's experience is going to bring a new audience. We're delusional. We still want, even with Jacob Collier and Robert and Joey Alexander, and, uh, and, and we could go on and on and on with Jazz Sensations, our, our consumer market ship has not left 1%. I agree with you. That's a problem I have, though. Because here we have... So, so how are these new records that, that, that are departing from jazz, how are they adding to our audience? 
how. At least nowadays with the streaming, it recommends stuff. I'm not saying you're making money off it, but the thing is that it's going to keep shrinking. We're at 1%. So when that generation passes, are we going to be what? Fighting with classical music for 0.5%? Well, here's my thing. We already are classical music, Leander. This is the thing to me that we don't realize. This is the other side of me. This is my entrepreneurship music business space. We already, we are already, already absent. <laughs> Leander, like we're talking about, you know, what's gonna happen? What has happened? There's Blue Note is holding on by a thread, and the only reason why yes. they're holding on is because they're under a universal EMI. Any other major jazz label is is an imprint at best, right? <laughs> you know, um, Verb holding on by a thread. Um, we've got probably less than a hundred festivals now. After the pandemic, we'll probably have forty to fifty festivals. You know, uh, we had probably. 150, 200 clubs around the world after the pandemic will probably have 75 to 125. Um, the only thing keeping us alive are grants. Um, and again, we are now America's classical music. And so now jazz went from being street people music to now it is being upheld it or upheld it rather by constituents and, uh, you know, aristocracy, by, you know, aristocrats is rich people's music. So this idea like, oh, a new audience, we've already lost the battle. <laughs> I agree with so much of what you said on that But okay, so How would you change it? So you have a student out of Juilliard What do they completely misunderstand about the music world? What would you actually tell them? And then we'll go into your entrepreneurial part of that Well, first of all What I think is missing is uh, In general, and it's, it's, it's a big part of my book And what I lecture about Is we are, we are missing mastery That is what we're missing The idea of mastery to whatever you do. So what I tell all of my students is like Winton said to us a few years ago on a faculty meeting, he said, it is going to take an incredibly talented person to walk in a room with their instrument and transform the room. And that to me is what every person has to know how to do now is we've got to figure out how to walk in a room when everybody's doing this or everybody's meeting you through this. And you've got to do what you do on such a high level that it captivates and it persuades people to fall in love with what you do. So I think every musician first has to become a master of their form because now you have a lot of people that are creating on such a low level. And, and because the level of creation is low, the level of consumership intellect-wise is also low. So now if Yo-Yo Ma got on stage, he's probably not going to get as much depth as somebody else who goes on stage but maybe puts lights around their cello. They're going to be like, oh, my God, I really, I mean, yo, your mom's great, but I really love this, this person who put lights around their cello. That is, like, breathtaking. Meanwhile, yo, your mom has changed how the, the cello has been played. So I think, one, mastery. Two, I think that we as musicians are going to have to have other things that we do that promote our music. So, for instance, I'm not making a living off of putting out a big band record. What I'm able to do is the big band record is adding to my body of work, and then I have all these other things that I'm doing and it just becomes part of the canon of what I'm putting out into the world. So I think gone are the days of a musician being able to, to, to solely make it as a performer selling CDs, traveling the world. I think that model is going to be pretty much null and void for at least five to 10 years. I think we're going to have to have either a day job or something else that supplements what we do, because I just don't think the audience um, and now the venue support is there. So I think, and then lastly, everyone is going to have to be entrepreneurial. We we are going to have to figure out ways to be entrepreneurial about our talent and the presentation of that talent and, and how we 
also connect with our own audience development, relationship building. We are all going to have to be entrepreneurial businesses. And those of us that are entrepreneurial, those are going to be the ones that last and do well and have sustainable careers. Those that don't and are old school will either get trapped in the education system or, or will probably not be able to make a living doing what they do. Fair. Can't argue with that for the most part. Okay. I don't mean to be the grim reaper. No, I'm just looking at I, dude, this I, show was founded on me being negative about jazz. I'll be the first one to tell you that. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of stuff I would say, even off the air, that's even worse yeah. than what I say <laughs> on the air about the jazz world. I love it, man. This is a great conversation. I, I love, uh, you know, you're very informed. So I, I, I love having these kind of conversations. So where do you think jazz would be in 10 years? Actually, before that, before that, before that. You pointed out something that I pointed out on another episode, which got me a lot of angry emails, which is from the closing of the venues the lack of support, the people not really paying attention. And of course, like you said, like with the YouTube special effects, blah, 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 lights and all that stuff, you don't need to have mastery of an instrument. You just need a catchy beat, a hook, and I guess someone that looks good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we can get mad about it and we can write emails about it or we could look at it and recognize it. You know what I mean? Um, that's where we are right now. You know, and, and I'm not going to call any names because I don't believe in that. And because God knows I don't need any angry emails. But I'll just say, let's just look at, you know, let's take a show like American Idol or The Voice. Um, or even, you know, a show like Dancing with the Stars. Uh, but I, I like, you know, American Idol or The Voice or The Masked Singer or whatever. If you really look at those shows and you look at who had the most talent, like who really sung in a way that captivated that audience, chances are they may not have won that show. They went with somebody who wasn't just talented, but could also be commercial and had commercial appeal. That is where, I mean, that, that is, I mean, let's be real. That is the music business. That is commercial, that is commercialism. So what's funny is that it's now entering the fine art space, right? As always what pop culture has been about, but now all of a sudden, and especially with, you know, don't even get us talking about, uh, you know, what has recently happened, not only, you know, I, I, I like to say there were two pandemics. Uh, there was the global pandemic and then there was the racial pandemic, right? Um, and so let's not even get into that comment of what uh, artists of color and even, you know, artists that are non-gender conforming and, you know, all, all of those other identifications as people and, and you know, the, the conversations around equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Let's not even get into that conversation, right? Like in that, now that's a whole other thing that's now surfacing in the world and in our industry where uh, it's another point of contention for some who, you know, are saying, well, why are we having this conversation for others of us who are people of color or, you know, BPOC community? We're like, finally, you know, so I think that the commercialization is having to now be run through a couple of different cycles. One is now the financial cycle. Another is, you know, uh, commercialism. Another is equity and diversity and other, you know what I mean? Yes. Another is economic. So to your point, yeah, I think mastery is where it all begins. And I think that there was a shift in our culture. I feel like, you know, again, I, I'm an 80s baby, but I feel like, I feel like when we got to the 2000s, things started across the board to become less about mastery and more about commercialization. Even though you always had pop culture, even your film actors and actresses, you know, were they had all studied the craft and all studied Shakespeare that, you know, there was like that generation. Then it was 
oh, well, they're just a really good actress or they got developed on soap operas, whatever. Then it was, well, they also happen to be an athlete. So they're getting a role. Now it's just, if you got 10 million YouTube subscribers, you're going to get a movie deal. Yeah. Even though I watch so, a certain boxer's fights, that's a perfect example. There's no reason for him to be in the ring with that guy who won all those belts. But because he yeah, has a I big mean, following on YouTube, you're right. I agree with you on that. And nothing against the guy. He's making his money. Nothing, doing yeah. his thing. I mean, even like, for instance, I was watching the other day. And again, I'm not, you know, I don't want to throw shade. I was watching like commercials on Hulu. I was watching a show. And there were like three biopics that they were advertising of three major artists. You know, one was, you know, well, I'll just say three major artists. When I looked at the people who were playing these artists, I was like, or portraying them, excuse me. They had nothing to do with these people. I was like, if these people were still living that they're portraying, would they be okay with these three people who most of them had made it because of some hit show or some, you know, they won an, they won some reality show or, you know, they have so many followers and, or, or followers. And I'm like, but if we're really talking about we're going to recreate the story of Michel, you know, Michelangelo, are we really going to get a guy who has 10 million YouTube, YouTube subscribers or are we going to get someone that is in the lineage of Michelangelo and his artistry? And I think that, again, where we're living at it in the time is we don't care about mastery anymore. We care about commercialization because in our mind, if this person has 10 million followers, then that means they're going to bring their 10 million fans, which is not necessarily true. That's not true. That's already been proven false by... It's already been proven wrong. Yeah. A certain person on YouTube, they gave a comedy show. And you, I'm pretty sure who you know what I mean. I don't. You got to tell me after this. Is yeah, over. okay. And that show has continuously flopped, but they keep putting it out there. I mean, extending their contract because they think the next season is going to do well. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. So what do you think it takes for people to appreciate mastery again? I think they have to... I think people to appreciate mastery... We have, and, and I, I want to be very careful how I answer this because I don't want to come across as demeaning or condescending. But I want to say that to appreciate mastery, you have to have a level of excellence and mastery in your life. If you look at yourself, if you look at those of us who are nerds about the things that we love, we appreciate it because there's a level of it that we already have in our own life. I mean, you know, you wouldn't even known have who, who I was if you weren't out there in love with the craft and looking for the next whatever. You're not an average person. You know what I mean? So I think that most people are mass consumers and their intellect uh, is kind of driven by what the world says. You know, they like just throw them stuff. Hey, take this, take that. It, so I think we are going to have to recreate the discerning audience um, and the discerning ear, the discerning eye to rate so to where what we crave is at a higher level. But I don't know that that's going to happen because this new generation is further, they're getting further and further and further away from it. And, you know, you've got whole generations who have grown up with this. So their introduction to anything is through that. So I don't, I don't know. I, I think we will always have a niche audience. So I think our goal is going to be how do we take that niche audience, that niche appeal, but then use it to have moments where we can, have some levels of mass appeal. Like, you know, John Batiste is a good example in that John is a niche artist, but he has found new ways uh, 
to implement himself into other, you know, other places that are mass for mass consumption. You know, like what he did with soul, you know, working with those two composers. And now, you know, I remember John when he was 17, he played on my senior recital. Uh, I've known him for many years, you know, and to see him evolve from a kid that just loved playing the piano to now this cat has a golden globe and an Oscar. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of him, but let's be honest. He did not get that playing at the Vanguard. He got that by working his butt off. He's on the Stephen Colbert show. He's always been an incredible networker. He's always been incredibly entrepreneurial. So now he's created a whole new terrain for I mean, himself. I agree. With, I've got to stop you there because that's something else. I okay, sorry. No, no, no. I agree with you because even though I live here, jazz musician, love jazz in general. I hate that Birdland, Blue Note, and Dizzy's. No offense to those free venues alone. It's like the pyramid. It's like you made it to Mount Rushmore. I'm sorry. I'm just saying. So I wish people would aim higher, go for different things like that, venture more. I'm with you. But it's like a lot of artists I know, they're more than happy with their steady or what they had a steady gig at a certain venue. Yeah. I mean, and, and to your point, that's what my book is all about. It's all about we need to get out of that mode of, you know, and then, again, there's no disrespect. I, I remember being that drummer that was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to play the Vanguard. I can't play the can't wait to play Dizzy's. I can't wait to tour Europe. Can't wait to tour Japan. And I've done all of that. And I'm here to tell you, having done all of that, I still was left with, okay, made a little money, made a little bit of history. Now what? Right? The Vanguard is only one week. <laughs> you know, you can only play Dizzy's four nights. You know, you can only play Smoke two nights, you know? So I agree. And that is what I think will make the music grow. If we, you talk about where do you think the music is headed? I think we need more people to do what, John has 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 shown what Robert has shown. You know, I'm I'm entering into the entrepreneurial space. What I'm trying to do, you know, and many others, we need to take our jazz training and our jazz mastery and we need to put it into other terrains. You know, even what Terrence Blanchard has done, you know, generations before us, you know, being one of the first incredible film scores to score hundreds of films, you know, but was kicked butt and still kicks butt as a trumpet player. What Winton has done, built an organization that has sustained itself for over 30 years. You know, what uh, Maria Schneider is doing, you know, creating incredible compositions and moving into other different spaces. Uh, you know, I don't think he's a jazz musician, but I think what Jacob Collier is doing in some regard uh, is incredible in terms of his, his presentation. And he is bringing in a whole new audience. There are people that have come to me saying that they love Jacob Collier that have never listened to Miles Davis, you know? So, um... I think we need to take our jazz, bring our jazz love and our mastery, and we need to use it to push us into other circles. Okay. You keep mentioning this book. What is this book that you're talking about? <laughs> I probably My know. book. Yes, it's called book. The Musician's The Musician's Career Guide, Turning Your Talent into Sustained Success. Okay. There you go. I'm going to send you the link right now. Okay. So there's a book for people to buy. Make sure you check yeah, it out. And I'll next, put it on yeah, there. and they can pre-order too. Okay, so this book is yep. going to go into all those problems, how to reinvent yourself as an artist, or what? Yep, it's everything. As, and I say, I wrote the book that somebody should have wrote for me. Okay, I give you that. Because nobody, because to your point, nobody, like, we're having these conversations now, Leander, because of the pandemic. But the reality is, the pandemic was the cherry on top. It wasn't even, it wasn't, it wasn't even the whipped cream. It was the cherry on top, <laughs> you know, this thing was already tilting. <laughs> you know? I agree. 
It was already tilting. People like and to I act like that, jazz didn't have problems oh, before please, the pandemic. And then, please, no offense to please. some of my friends, those that like to act like they ran out of money and all this stuff. And, you know, yeah, were you really? Well, yeah. well if you want to really be real about it, and again, <laughs> I'm going to be very careful because I don't want to, you know, make any enemies here. Jazz, if you want to look at the jazz festival, the jazz marketplace, it was only catering to about 30 artists. <laughs> I mean, Thank you. you know, thank you. All the festivals, like if you really look at, you know, the 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 hundred festivals or hundred fifty festivals that that were there, you know, and I'm fortunate to to thank God for an incredible booking agent. Um, I've been included on some of those festivals, and 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 some that I haven't been, I'm slated to be included on the other ones coming up. But it has been catered around, and and I'm not attacking those thirty or forty artists. But what I mean is that it has constantly changed from okay. You know, who's who's the 30 or 40 artists in the 50s? OK, mm-hmm. all right. Now, who's popular in the 60s? OK, now, who's pop- you know, so we've always as an industry sort of, are, you know, we kind of uh, uh, rally around, you know, a few of the top personalities that just, you know, have upheld the form. So I do think I think the pandemic has allowed us to be like, OK, wow, like what are, like what are we going to do now? We've got to rethink our model. And and I don't like why it made us rethink. I don't like that hundreds of thousands of people had to to leave here um, before their time, even if they were older. They left before their time. So I hate that. And and I and is and I've lost people. I've lost you know uh, people that were incredibly dear to me. So it's an incredibly sore subject for me. However, I think as a result of that. It is now making those of us that are still here say, "How are we going to revamp and retool and move forward?" Uh, yeah, I agree, and that's another thing I had a problem with. So let's just say I didn't catch them at a jazz festival in Canada. I knew there would be an LA performing, pretty much the same set with the same people. That's another problem I have, but yeah, I know. And then the average what artist, is the- like you said, is not. In all those forms, so it's like you're relying on one festival a year and private yeah, lessons. And listen, I'm gonna do you one better. I keep plug, I keep I, I keep talking about the book, but I don't. It's not because I'm plugging it, but this is what I my philosophy. Stop waiting on somebody to give you permission to be you. So I was waiting on festivals. I started my own jazz festival. I wanted to change my community. I started my own nonprofit organization. I I didn't get the music business book that I felt should be there. I wrote my own book. You know, like if you, you know, so look, even guys uh, who are out there, they wanted to put their records out and couldn't get signed. They start their own record label. That to me is what I mean by being entrepreneurial. If we're going to create a new jazz scene and a new jazz world, we have to stop waiting on the system to give us something. We need to empower ourselves and build, excuse my French, build our own shit. So within my world now, I've got a whole system set up of ways that I can continue to not only help myself, but now I got a festival where I can book, you know, eight to 10 of my friends every year. And I'm going to, I plan to keep that going for years to come. Okay. I've now got, you know what I mean? The USC is that, Grant, I mean, what's your festival called? <laughs> Where's it? It's, it's, it's the Don't Miss a Beat Jazz Festival in Jacksonville, Florida. The yes. inaugural year is this year. Okay. You know, so already my friends, you know, even like Etienne Charles was a good friend of mine. He called me. He's like, yo, bro, I couldn't do this year. Man, can 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 we do next year? Yeah, bro. Jamison Ross, good friend of mine. Hey, man, can we do next year? Like, we got to create shit for our friends. You know, we got we to gotta create things for people instead of waiting on someone to, to create it for us. And I think that is what the pandemic 
did it erase the system in a lot of ways. You know, that even the system is like, okay, we need a bailout, you know? So while you got these venues trying to figure out how they're going to come back, this is also a time where everything's been, you know, the it's ground level zero now. So now it's equal opportunity for everybody. So as we're rebuilding, you can now come in with something and you can build as, as other people are rebuilding and potentially have, you know, your own thing. Well said. And this is going to conflict with the Jacksonville Jazz Festival? No, because Jacksonville Jazz, so we're, Ours is happening July 24th. The Jacksonville Jazz Festival has just been confirmed. I think it's going to happen the weekend of October 1st through the 3rd. Okay. So Jacksonville has two major ones that I know of. And isn't Jacksonville mainly smooth jazz, if I'm correct? Well, so I don't want to speak for the Jacksonville Jazz Festival because I don't, I don't believe in misrepresenting people. What I will say is based on the market, we have a lot of R&B um, and I don't want to say smooth jazz, but we have a lot of R&B and more soul jazz artists versus some other festivals that may have, you know, more of the Spangling or whatever. But they, they, I feel like they try to do a good job of, of creating like a pal, you know, like a very broad range. Because, um, I mean, they, man, they, they book, they, they normally do two weeks, man. They book something like 50, 60 artists, man. I mean, they cover the gamut, you know. Okay. So in five, 10 years, I expect yours to be that big. We'll see, man. Listen, we'll see what God's will is. And I think, as I said earlier, what I want, Lander, my, my festival has a little bit different focus point. My festival focus point is the community. I'm bringing jazz to the community uh, and, and particularly an underserved community. So I'm not competing for people who, you know, are willing to come and spend $50 for a ticket and, you know, sit, you know, uh, uh, sit at the front of the stage and they're a little fancy suit. I'm committing. I'm, my festival is for regular folks is for folks that can't afford to go to the jazz festival It's for folks that can't afford to go to the classy theater. Uh, it's for grandma and granddaddy and blue collar folks who are hardworking people and no other way would they be able to see this music and experience it other than the fact that it's in their backyard. That is who my festival's for. So what I will say is if I'm fortunate to be able to bring uh, a dream list of artists there for the people, then I will absolutely love to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, my dream is to get Gregory Porter on my festival in a few years. I've worked with Gregory. Um, but, you know, my but for me, it's all community based. Talk about someone that took off, by the way. Gregory. I, listen, I remember working with Gregory um, in Brooklyn, New York. And then forget I worked. I did a job with him at the at a bank. And he this is when he was playing. Uh, I don't know if you remember. He was playing smoke every week. Yes. <laughs> and uh do you remember that? So yes, I do. Playing, I th- it was like every Thursday night or something like that. And, it, you know, it started out as him just doing it. And then I never forget, it was just a line outside the door. Then next thing I know, he started becoming who he is, you know. I used to see uh, him at the great. open mics at Zinc Bar. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> so that's how long I've known of this guy. So I could say like, dude, now you're winning Grammys and now you're doing crossover R&B songs. So it's like, you know what? Good for you. You made it. <laughs> well, Leander, that goes back to what we talked about, right? That goes back to mastery. Gregory committed to mastery. He he honed his teeth. You know, he put together a band. He kept working it, kept working it, kept working it. And then life unveiled to him a reward of his mastery. So what are we talking about? So like I said, yeah, I guess you're right on that. So I can't, yeah. <laughs> He, but he also has a voice of, of God. I mean, yeah, that, he's a singer. You know, so. and, and his spirit 
is such that it's very inviting as well, you know. Uh, but when he opens his mouth and sings, I, you don't even have to like him. You don't have to like anything about him. But you can't deny that that voice isn't golden. And people stop and listen to him. That's one thing I would say. Absolutely. From even Zinc, people would just walk in, Absolutely. pay to cover, just as he's playing that one, singing that one song. I've literally right. seen that. <laughs> right. Okay. So where do you think jazz will be in 10 years? I don't know, man. I mean, I think that um, I, I can't speak to that. I, what, I, what I'm more interested in is not where jazz is going to be. What I'm interested in is where we are going to take it. So I, I don't like this thing of where do you think it'll be? Fuck that. Excuse my French. Where are we taking the music? Where, where do we want it to go? <laughs> I to the moon. Nothing. That's where we want it to go. Right. <laughs> you know, shit, I'm releasing a big band album in a pandemic. I don't, I'm taking, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm not waiting for where it's going to be. I'll tell you where I'm going to be. <laughs> or where I hope to be, I should say. I can't decide my, my fate, but I'll tell you where I hope to be. Um, but yeah, man, I, I don't know where it's going to be, but I know I have things that I want to do and projects I want to do and ways that I want to allow this music to touch and heal the community. And uh, and I, I hope we can, you know, travel back around the world and things like that. But I don't know where it's going to be. Okay. And lack of interest in jazz from the youth. What is your solution to fix that? You have to connect with the youth, man. I, I've been teaching youth for over 13 years uh, at, at Don't Miss a Beat. And I'm not talking about art babies. I'm talking about I've been teaching youth that uh, did not grow up with music in the house and did not get exposed you know, to, to it. And what I have figured out is if you are authentic and you care about them and you seek to really reach them in a, from a true, sincere place, they won't reject that. Uh, for instance, I, you know, I don't miss a beat. We, we took what some would call, you know, I don't believe in the term at risk. I call them at hope kids. And now I got my kids for the last five years doing musical theater shows, you know, a bunch of black and brown, beautiful children doing musical theater, you know, some would say musical theater is passe or some would say that it's antiquated, but musical theater is the tool, you know, it's the tool that I use to connect. So I think your, your idea around jazz and the younger generation, I think we have to first connect with them, humble ourselves, connect with them. And then the tool that we connect can be jazz. But the problem is we go to them with a very high sense of entitlement. And we say to them to a 13 year old, you need to be checking out, Charlie Parker, why? Why Why as a 13-year-old do I need to check? You know, I, this person's living, you know, whether they live in the projects or they, they grew up from with a family with modest means, whatever. If they are 13 years old, why should they care about Charlie Parker? I love why? Charlie, but the guy's been dead for like 50 years. Come on. No, he's been dead since, what? The, uh, it, Charlie Parker died, what, 60? 60, 59. Oh, yeah, you're right. My bad. Bad Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so the man's been dead. Yeah, he's been dead over 60 years. Yeah, you see, that's the problem I have with so, Charlie Parker's so, era jazz and all that stuff. It's like, right, I so, love The Temptations. That's my example. They were huge in the 60s and the early 70s. When right. was the last time you heard them in a club? Right. So, but, but here's the thing. If you can save that child's life, if that child is looking for inspiration, you know, like I have, I have uh, another thing that I've started implementing is spoken word. And I'll have a lot of kids who are really shy and they'll come to me and they're like, you know, they can't really express themselves. And I'm like, hey, uh, have you ever heard a spoken word? And they're like, no. And I'm like, take this Langston Hughes poem. They come back, they, they say the poem, and now they're a new person. Now they're in love with Langston Hughes' work, 
right? Langston Hughes is another one, been dead for decades. But I was able to use his work as a tool to help this person find their way. Same thing what you're talking about with Temptations or, you know, uh, one of my uh, young girls at uh, DMAB, I got her into Nikki Giovanni, you know, or I've got our last, you know, two years ago, we did Once on This Island and I had 80 black kids, you know, screaming Once on This Island for, for eight weeks, <laughs> you know, they, I mean, they wouldn't have known about that, but it was a tool that helped them to stay connected, a way of camaraderie, a way for them, you know, to come into their own and have fun for the summer. So it became this thing that they love. That musical is 30 years old. So I think that we've got to figure out with jazz, how do we connect and make make the, the, the tool something that the students feel is their idea and embracing it as a means to something further that they want to discover. And I think we have not done that in jazz education. I think we're 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 entitled and we we and then we demean and we condescend and we're condescending to people and and then we make them feel stupid because they aren't checking it out. Well, and I don't think that's the way that we're a gonna lot reach of jazz more artists are known to be in, or jazz lovers are known to be elitist. That's a not a huge problem I have. Yeah. There's nothing worse yeah. when you go to a club, a jazz club, and someone says, ah, that's an alto sax. And someone t- at a random table just says, no, that's a tenor. Like, why? Right, but again, like, but again, why? man, that's all, uh, that's all, I mean, everybody has to have something that makes them feel special. And so for that person who corrected this one about a tenor saxophone, that gives them a sense of superiority of, I know something you don't know. And that's what maybe turns that person on. You know what I mean? So it's it's all, man, it's all convoluted, bro. I, I think we have to look at what 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 do we want to accomplish? How do we want to accomplish it? And hopefully over time, as we accomplish what we want, we will build an audience around that. That is fair. I give you that. So what is your dream project? No money issues. You can have anyone in the world on it. What would it be? I, man, I, I tell you, I don't have any dream projects. I just want to finance all the ones that I have without going broke. That's a dream. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, to me, rather than having a dream project, I would, I want to be able to finance all the, the various projects. I want to be able to have one project that is financed, that is out in the world, and I get to book it and work it for a year. That's a dream. That's a realistic dream, though. So you know, I mean, think I can't about it. Like, yeah. Think about it. Like you come, I come up with a project. You know, you know whether it's the next big band album, and I'm like, all right, I got the next big band album, and I have somebody say, all right, Ulysses, how much do you know? What do you want to do? And I and I, I don't mean shoestring budget. I mean I want to pay everybody well. I want to pay all the arrangers. I want to go to the studio, the right studio. I want to take care of everybody. Then let's you know tour this thing for a year. Let's put cats on a bus, you know, a real night or several tour buses, you know, uh, have them in good hotels. You know, if they want to fly, we can put them on good flights. Like, I, I just want to be able to like do that, <laughs> you know, and and there's very few jazz artists that can actually do that, can make a record, fully fund it, tour it, tour it well, make good fees, and then be able to take some time off and spend time with their family. That is, that that's not even I, I would even argue to say that's even 10% of the jazz scene that I think that. off the top of my head only two come to mind one is Lincoln Center obviously I mean it's at least 10 people I mean you know you got McBride can do that Pat Metheny Diane Reeves you know Diana Crawl. you know you got uh, you know I mean they're, they're, they're well probably more like 20 or so people that 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 whatever they put out does well they can tour it you know Cecile McCorn Savant you know you have a lot of people who 
they they can put things out in the world, get support for it, and then you know do well. So I, rather than a dream project, I, I hope I, I, there's a dream way of of the process that I would hope to accomplish at a certain point. Okay, that is fair. You're kicking my ass on this interview, so I'll, <laughs> everyone's gonna be like, "Why are you so quiet? Why aren't you going at him?" And it's like, you know, when, he, when someone's doing their thing, you let them do their thing. <laughs> so. Before we go, we normally like to give a shout out, show our respects to the artists who came before us, okay? So I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. On trumpet, Freddie Hubbard or Clifford Brown? Um, that's a hard one. Um, I would say Freddie Hubbard only because a lot of people I've had a chance to work with worked with him. And he was incredibly influential to them and taught them a lot about the music. So I would, I would, I would speak to him and to his life and his legacy musically uh, because it affects me. It's affected me every day with the people that have imparted into my life. Okay, that is fair. On saxophone, John Coltrane or Coleman Hawkins? I would have to say John Coltrane because John, um, though I'm familiar with Coleman Hawkins' work, and I know he preceded John. John Coltrane's sound and his his legacy changed my life. Uh, I Love Supreme was probably one of the first 10 to 20 albums that I checked out when I was a teenager. And hearing that blend of jazz and spirituality uh, informed me that jazz could be spiritual. So, yeah, John Coltrane all day for me. On bass, Ray Brown or Charles Mingus? That's a hard one. Um because again, Ray Brown, I worked with a lot of people who were not only influenced by Ray Brown's bass playing, but you know, Ray was a consummate professional and entrepreneur. So I will probably go with Ray because of the way that, again, indirectly, I've worked with all these people who told me all these stories about Ray and I've spent time actually with his wife or his widow, excuse me. So uh, his legacy is very much alive in me. But again, I love what Charles Minkus did politically and what he stood for. But I think that Ray's music and his legacy is probably more entrenched in me than would been Charles Mingus. Okay. On keys, we're going to go Bill Evans or Oscar Peterson? Oscar Peterson all day long. That was the first jazz record I ever heard. Uh, I was 13 years old and I got introduced to Honeysuckle Rose. Okay. And on drums, this is the one I really want to know. There's so many different ones I could ask you, but we'll go with Tony Williams or Arch Blakey. Art Blakey all day. Okay, you answered that too I think quick. <laughs> Art, I mean, Art Blakey, Art Blakey is somebody who initially I, I uh, did not fully appreciate him because his playing was very traditional. As I now live the life that I'm living, you know, uh, UOJ Big Band, you know, New Century, you, you know, Generation Y, all these various projects that I have, I am living the embodiment or seeking to live the embodiment of Art Blakey's legacy, which is as a drummer, power multiple ensembles. And as a result of my spirit and my my uh, mastery that I've been blessed to have and continue to work on, I'm now influencing and inspiring other people to go out. And, and from my band, they can go out and do great things. So Art Blakey is like, he he is the pinnacle for me. He's the pinnacle? Absolutely. Tony Williams is, an, is a great drummer, but I don't know that Tony did the same thing that Art did. I think Tony left a legacy as a drummer. I don't think the drums will ever be the same after Tony Williams. Art Blakey changed jazz music. <laughs> so one changed an instrument. Another person changed an industry and a business. 
And that's what I want to do. Can't argue with that then. Okay, no problem. So could you tell everyone your social media, where to find you, sure. et cetera? Sure. Ulysses Owens Jr. underscore is Instagram. Um, and then Ulysses Owens Jr. Uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, and that is Ulysses Owens Jr., not Ulysses Grant. Uh, I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's been dead for like what 150 years <laughs> hey man shit I, I, I just the other day and the funny thing was i literally emailed the person about something and we were in the middle of the interview and they were like yeah ulysses grant and i was like didn't you look at my email address that said ulysses owens jr <laughs> you know but anyway yeah so that that's how you find me um also ulysses owens jr.com um and i put you know i gave you the link to the new book that's about to come out yes, but everything that. is on my website so uh and then, you know, the music, man, outside and music, man. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. And, you know, Leander, I'm incredibly grateful, man, to have to have you take time with me and talk about all the great things we, we talked about. Wow, this has so. been a fun one. I'm ready for all oh, the we don't get any angry emails. <laughs> I hope we don't get any angry emails. But get... you know what? It is what it is. All right. So, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>